Thanks for downloading the UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, the first in a series of talks entitled Wartime Attachments. The talk, 1914, Psychoanalysis and the Narcissistic Wound, was given by Julie Walsh from Warwick University. The talk was introduced by the organiser of the series, Barry Shields. Julie Walsh is a Global Research Fellow at Warwick University and a practising psychoanalytic psychotherapist qualified with the site for contemporary psychoanalysis in London. Her latest book is called Narcissism and Its Discontents, and that's with Palgrave in 2014, and she has written extensively on Freud and the legacies of Freudian psychoanalysis. Um, Her current research project explores the relation between shame and sociability, and today she's going to talk to us about 1914, psychoanalysis and the narcissistic wound. Thank you very much, Barry, for the invitation to speak today, and thank you to the Humanities Institute for hosting this event. Um, My title is 1914, Psychoanalysis and the Narcissistic Wound. And I'll say up front that really what I'm most interested in with respect to Sigmund Freud's thoughts on war is the possibility of finding an answer to the question of how to mourn. It should come as no surprise to hear a psychoanalyst situate the problem of war within a framework of mourning. Truth be told, there's not a lot that psychoanalysis can't or perhaps won't situate within a framework of mourning. But the question of what is lost in war, of just what it's necessary to grieve, is, I think, surprisingly difficult to answer. And furthermore, the relationship between these two questions, what is lost and how to mourn, evades immediate comprehension. Now, I'm not promising to arrive at an answer to these questions in the next 40 minutes or so, but perhaps simply foregrounding them may do some work for us. There are some further very broad lines of thought that it might help to place up front. First, insofar as it makes sense to speak of an experience of the war, I'm going to be following and exploring some of Freud's thoughts on the perspective of the non-combatant, rather than the perspective of the soldier. My reason for this is because ultimately I'm concerned to say something about war in general, rather than the specifics of the Great War, as we may or may not choose to refer to it. I'm taken by a line from Gertrude Stein, a line, incidentally, that Jacqueline Rose figures to frame her psychoanalytic discussion of war. Stein remarks, It's funny about wars. They ought to be different, but they are not. Wars ought to be different, but they are not. I'm interested in this tension between the sameness of wars and the difference of wars. Was the war of 1914 to 1918 a new kind of war? Yes, undoubtedly. Its newness being inseparable from the technological shifts in warfare that were the signature of, as Freud would remark, a war more bloody and more destructive than any war of other days. Revolutionary changes in air warfare and aerial reconnaissance the development of gas warfare, the introduction of the submarine, high-explosive shelling, submachine guns and automatic rifles, such developments marked what Freud refers to in his 1915 essay, Thoughts on War and Death, as the enormously increased perfection of weapons of attack and defence. 100 years on, however, 
The newness of the 20th century's mechanised and industrialised attacks on life has, of course, paled. Why? Well, not least because the enormously increased perfection of weapons of attack and defence has further increased, as is technology's want. We now have modes of warfare and feats of technology that extend weaponry's increased perfection in ways that we can only presume were unimaginable when Freud was writing. Drone technology would be the obvious example here. A discrete air-to-surface missile with a diameter of just seven inches can be delivered from a, from a distance of up to eight kilometres by a remote operator situated in an altogether distant land to strike at the target of a single human body. Near perfect precision. Deadly precision, we'd have to say, and maddening too, in acknowledgement of the combination of extreme proximity, the locked coordinates on a solitary human form, and utter displacement, the finger very far away that pulls the trigger. This too near and too distant engagement constitutes a curiously intimate and alien form of human violence. So are we to say then that with drone strikes, war is now, again, new, qualitatively different from that which went before? Or must we say, to run two tried and perhaps tired lines together, that when there is no war to end all wars, there is in fact nothing new under the sun? It's before I endeavour to answer these questions, let me ask another one. What possible benefit might there be in bringing out the sameness of war? It's certainly not a strategy that the historians among us would have much truck with. But it is a move that takes us into the landscape of narcissism. It may be that to focus on the sameness of wars would be to commit the specifically narcissistic crime of failing to recognise difference. Narcissus, remember, was that beautiful boy of myth who chose his self-same image to fall fatally in love with. But in fact, did he? Whether Narcissus falls in love with his image as himself or with his image as if another is a moot point. Arguably, the play of sameness and difference, and indeed the question of recognition, is kept alive in narcissism rather than killed off. I think this leads to an inevitable follow-on question in my seemingly interminable series of opening questions today. Namely, what could it mean to speak truthfully of sameness and difference in a time of war when battle lines are drawn and breached and occupation by a foreign body comprises an ever-present threat? On the one hand, for wars to work, difference is mobilised as overstatement. Freud writes that war stamps strangers as enemies, and I'll return to this later. In periods of conflict, it's us and them, the good is and the bad is, such is the rhetoric of the playground to which war invites us to aggress. But the black and the white of it, and let's not forget that war is so often a matter of colour, is wholly opposed to the difficult negotiation of sameness and separateness, both within psychic landscapes and within the social and political border spaces that war reconfigures. In lieu of the hyperbolic and highly defensive modes of splitting and othering that war mobilises, how else might we organise our mourning? And specifically, how can psychoanalysis as a discourse that found itself and founded so much of its theory in the context of war help us? 
So these are some of the questions that I hope to keep alive in my paper this afternoon, with special reference to the idea of the narcissistic wound. The 1914 of my title signals the breakout of the war, but also, as some of you may by now be anticipating, it points us towards the production of Freud's 1914 paper on narcissism. My other metapsychological coordinate will be the sister paper to On Narcissism, Mourning and Melancholia, which Freud wrote the following year and which really extends the terrain of thought that he's fighting with in 1914. Beyond those two papers, I'm going to spend some time towards the end of my talk with a very different text of Freud's from 1915, Thoughts on War and Death. Having just turned 58 years of age when war was declared in the June of 1914, Sigmund Freud was never afforded a view from the trenches. His perspective, his psychoanalytic perspective, is one of the witness. Ernest Jones tells us that in 1914, as often happened when Freud fell in poor health or in low spirits, his productivity was at its highest. Quoting Jones, Inner concentration was taking the place of interest in the dismal happenings in the outer world. The psychoanalytically minded among us will see straight away that Jones is describing the shape of a defence mechanism here. Specifically, a form of self-preservation which would become central to psychoanalytic theory in this wartime period. The withdrawal of interest from the outside world is how Freud would regularly describe the narcissistic component of melancholia. To contextualise Freud's growing sense of personal isolation, it's only necessary to note the ways in which the outbreak of the war impeded the advance of psychoanalysis as a scientific movement. Plans for the International Psychoanalytic Association's forthcoming Dresden Congress were immediately halted. The trade and distribution of key psychoanalytic journals was starkly curtailed. Healthy attendance at the weekly meetings of the Psychoanalytic Society in Vienna was no longer possible, given the conscription of many Freudians and the redeployment of their psychoanalytic talents. The wealth of correspondence that fuelled Freud's writing practice ran perilously low, as did the bread and butter of his clinical practice, fee-paying patients. Freud's inner circle was disbanded, his scientific community was under threat. By the November of 1914, he had just the one patient in his clinic. The following month, writing to his ally and much-needed friend Sandor Ferenczi, Freud declared that he was now more isolated from the world than ever. I shall quote a rather lengthy extract from this letter, because I think it contains a great deal that will be of relevance to what I continue to say. So, Freud writes... I am living, as my brother says, in my private trench. I speculate and write, and after hard battles, I have safe, got safely through the first line of riddles and difficulties. Anxiety, hysteria, and paranoia have capitulated. We shall, see, we shall now see how far the successes can be carried forward. A great many things have emerged in the process. The choice of neurosis, the regressions taken care of without a hitch, your interjection has proven to be very useful. Some progress in the phases of the development of the ego. The significance of the whole thing depends on whether we succeed in mastering the actually dynamic. The problem of pleasure-unpleasure, about which I am actually in doubt after my preliminary attempts. But even without this, I may say that I have already given the world more than she has given me. 
I am now, and because of the foreseeable consequences of the war, will also be later more isolated than ever. And I know that at present I am writing for five people, you and the few others. To begin with, then, we can take this letter as it was intended, a progress report from the imaginary front line. Freud's readiness to see himself as an embattled figure, advancing his science, defending his cause, and indeed defending his ego, from factional politics and dangerous defectors, is often noted. Here, his military imaginary appears in the language of the primitive trench, the severe battles resulting in concrete capitulations, and allusions to further as yet unconquered territories. More fundamentally, in fact, in the very building blocks of psychoanalytic theory, similar military imagery persists. Here are a few, perhaps, familiar examples, which I shan't go through in detail, but most obviously we have the mechanisms of defence. We have broad metaphors of occupation and resistance. I'm especially taken by Freud's capture of censorship, how he articulates it here, Have you ever seen a foreign newspaper which has passed the Russian censorship at the frontier? Words, whole clauses and sentences are blacked out so that what is left becomes unintelligible. Freud's talking about the unintelligibility that one encounters in the interpretation of a dream, say. But he's also giving us a sense, I think, of how language gets lost in conflict. More generally in Freud's work, we have zones and maps and territories, all of which must be thought of in relation, again, to conflict. Here's a famous um, schematic picture of sexuality that Freud puts forward in 1892, I think. And I've contrasted it here with an illustration of the power of a German supergun. Though, when it comes to what Freud referred to as the enormously increased perfection of weapons of attack and defence... It has to be said that this supergun is not a shining example. It had a target range of 80 miles and was used to shell Paris from the German side of the front, but its accuracy was apparently so poor that it rarely hit the desired targets. That the images and movements of war preoccupy Freud's theoretical expression is perhaps only to be expected from the scientist whose subject matter is conflict itself. Interestingly, it's often been noticed that there's a vigorous or even violent quality to Freud's choice of language in the German that just doesn't communicate, it gets censored in the act of translation to English. As Peter Lovenberg has made clear, Freud's use of expressions and figures of speech derived from military combat is one way of ensuring that the active and kinesthetic dimension to psychoanalytic work is communicated. In other words... Because warring factions really are at work in the individual psyche, and hence in the clinical encounter, we do need to be able to hear them too in psychoanalysis's theoretical language. If we were to name these warring factions, these constitutive forces of psychic life, which is always a life in conflict, we might simply utter the terms sex and death. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Instead, we can return to our long quotation for a moment. I pointed to the obvious, how the backdrop of war infiltrates Freud's descriptive account of his own isolation. It follows, then, that the war years for Freud were not representable to himself as a period of splendid isolation, 
This was the phrase he used to refer to an earlier duration of heightened and passionate attachment to his work. And yet, as Jones has alerted us to, when we consider the wealth of writing that came from Freud's retranchement between 1914 and 1918, we simply could not say that the war was altogether an experience of impoverishment. It's plain to see that the landscape of Freud's theory building was really beginning to take shape at this, at this point in time. In his letter to Ferenczi, it keeps coming round again, Freud seems to acknowledge the gift of his friend's work on introjection to the progress he's making on the question of ego formation. Your introjection has proved to be very useful. A notion of introjection or of oral incorporation would, of course, be useful in developing an account of ego formation because it describes a process through which the outside gets in. For our purposes today, I suppose we're thinking about how war gets in, and indeed we're proceeding on the understanding that it cannot do so without violence. I'm going to turn now to the two wartime papers that I mentioned earlier, on Narcissism and Introduction, written in 1914, and Mourning and Melancholia, written the following year. The English title of Freud's 1914 work, On Narcissism and Introduction, suggests that the paper promises an introductory sketch of narcissism, whereas the German, Zur Einführung des Narzissmus, indicates that the task of the paper is, in fact, to account for the introduction of narcissism to the broader psychoanalytic project. This difference of inflection is important. Why, we'd want to ask, does Freud introduce narcissism to his metapsychological field? How does it assist him in fashioning his account of subject formation? The answer is not that easy to find, because within this notoriously difficult paper, we can identify conflicting accounts of narcissism as an, ex as an explanatory framework for an individual's genesis. Most importantly, there's what's taken to be the standard understanding of primary narcissism that Freud conveys with his analogy of the amoeba. Thus we form the idea of there being an original libidinal cathexis of the ego from which some is later given off to objects, but which fundamentally persists and is related to the object cathexis, much as the body of an amoeba is related to the pseudopodia which it puts out. The amoeba's pseudopodia, its feelers or its antennae if you like, extend into the world of objects on the understanding that they can be swiftly withdrawn and returned to rest in the amoeba body. Primary narcissism, then, is read as the early state in which the child, the neonate, invests or occupies its own self with the whole of its libido. However, running alongside this version of narcissism, where there is an original libidinal cathexis of the ego, implying the existence of the ego from the start, there is also an alternative version, where narcissism is posited as an intermediary stage between autoeroticism and some form of object relationship proper. In this version, it's asserted that the ego, as a unified entity, could not possibly exist from the beginning. Rather, it has to be developed. Freud claims that because a unity comparable to the ego cannot exist in the individual from the start, a new psychical action is necessary to propel the transition from autoeroticism as an object-less state to the state of narcissism 
as a state in which the ego is libidinally affected. Frustratingly, the reader of the 1914 paper does not learn what this new psychical action is that instantiates the necessary development of the ego. In fact, it's only when narcissism gets reworked as integral to the theory of mourning and melancholia that Freud gains ground on this question. Furthermore, it's through the theorisation of grief states that the violence of ego development is underscored. Mourning and melancholia, then, contribute to the catalogue of commonplace conditions enumerated by Freud in his 1914 paper that are characterised by a narcissistic withdrawal of libido onto the subject's own self. Organic illness, hypochondria, sleep, falling in love, grieving, these are all narcissistic states. When the sick man, suffering from toothache, says Freud, withdraws his libidinal cathexis back into his own ego and temporarily neglects his most cherished objects in the outside world, we don't find his behaviour alarming. Likewise, we are not taken aback when the loss of a loved one creates in the individual a state of profoundly painful dejection, cessation of interest in the outside world, loss of the capacity to love, and inhibition of all activity. We're not surprised by this state, for the person in question will, of necessity, devote herself to the work of mourning until the point at which, Freud says, respect for reality gains the day and investments beyond the ego can be afforded once more. Such is the condition of normal mourning. For the melancholic, however, the picture's a little more complex. In addition to exhibiting the painful symptoms of a subject in mourning, the melancholic manifests a curious disturbance of self-regard, which finds expression in uninhibited self-criticism and self-reproach. It's only when one understands melancholia as a process through which an object cathexis, a libidinal investment in a loved one, is replaced by an identification that the true target of the melancholic's criticism is revealed to be the lost object rather than the individual's own self. This confusion rebounds because the nature of the loss that gives rise to melancholia cannot be directed, directly apprehended as it can in so-called normal mourning. The melancholic might know whom he has lost, but not what he has lost in him. With this differentiation between the known whom and the unknown what, Freud underscores the opacity of melancholia commensurate with the, with the withdrawal of the object's loss from consciousness. This leads Freud to articulate the distinction between the two states as follows. In mourning, it is the world which has become poor and empty. In melancholia, it is the ego itself. But just how does the lost object get inside? Freud explains that when in melancholia, the surface of libido that the, lost, that the loss of the object releases is withdrawn into the ego, it then binds the ego to the abandoned object in a narcissistic identification. In a much-quoted passage... The mode of identification of the ego with the abandoned object is described as follows. Thus, the shadow of the object fell upon the ego, and the latter could henceforth be judged by a special agency, as though it were an object, the forsaken object. In this way, an object loss was transformed into an ego loss, 
and the conflict between the ego and the loved person into a cleavage between the critical activity of the ego and the ego as altered by identification. It's important to keep in mind here the inviolable psychoanalytic principle of ambivalence. With particular reference to narcissism, Freud tells us that in the oral or cannibalistic phase of sexual organisation, where love and hate are not yet in opposition, the desire to incorporate the object is an expression of a type of love which is consistent with abolishing the object's separate existence and which may therefore be described as ambivalent. Hence, in melancholia, a regressive narcissistic identification with the object enacts an incorporation which brings the melancholic's ambivalence to the fore. We can see why Ferenc's incorporation proved so useful to Freud. In sustaining a narcissistic identification with the object, the melancholic does not have to give up the lost object wholesale. However, in the very act of safeguarding something of the object through its transformation, the melancholic also preserves the conflict that was coincident with object love. Now, though, the conflict due to ambivalence is a battle that rages entirely within one breast. Freud continues, If the love for the object, a love which cannot be given up, though the object itself is given up, takes refuge in narcissistic identification, then the hate comes into operation on this substitutive object, abusing it, debasing it, making it suffer, and deriving sadistic satisfaction from its suffering. The self-tormenting in melancholia, which is without doubt enjoyable, signifies a satisfaction of trends of sadism and hate which relate to an object and which have been turned around on the subject's own self. Presupposing that the ego can take itself as object, a substitute object, Melancholia models a turning around of destructive trends back on the subject's own self. We cannot overlook the violence inherent in this melancholic fantasyscape with its intimate connection to the operations of moral conscience. Freud offers the phenomenon of suicide and of suicidal thoughts as operative under this schema, where the ego can kill itself only if, owing to the return of the object cathexis, it can treat itself as an object. Some years later, by which time the ego's critical agency was theorised as a superego, Freud asks how in melancholia the superego can become a kind of gathering place for the death instincts. With reference again to the figurative turn, a turning around of destructive trends, he concludes that the more a man controls his aggressiveness, the more intense becomes his ideal's inclination to aggressiveness against his ego. It is like a displacement, a turning around upon his own ego. What's important to note is that this curious picture is thoroughly generalised when Freud explains that melancholic substitutions should be understood as common and typical in a theory of character development. The upshot being that in the story of subject formation, the ego is somehow instantiated by a violent turning around upon itself. This paradoxical shape has further been developed by many critics, perhaps most importantly with respect to melancholy or narcissistic subjectivities by Judith Butler, who takes Freud's figuration of the ego's turn back upon itself to craft an account of grief 
as that which interiorises the psyche. With this metapsychological ground sketched out, I'd like now to move away from the conflicted twists and turns of ego development and consider instead Freud's cultural diagnosis of the particular historical moment of conflict. In the spring of 1915, six months or so into the war, Freud gathered his thoughts on war and death in two parallel essays. The task he sets himself in this work is to shed light on the reasons that the non-combatant, and we can assume he is speaking for himself, feels so bewildered and so inhibited, so without bearings, once war breaks out. I'll talk us through the main points of Freud's discussion here. And as above, I'm kind of paraphrasing his papers so I won't be signalling every point of direct quotation. An alternative title for Freud's thoughts on war war and death might be How We Get Civilised and What It Costs. The price of civilised peace, and this is of course the kernel of Freud's sociology, is the renunciation of instinctual satisfaction. Primitive impulses, low morality, individual brutality, all the trends of unfettered egoism are worked over by the influences of civilization and refashioned as the appearance of altruism. By the admixture of erotic components, writes Freud, the egoistic instincts are transformed into social ones. We learn to value being loved as an advantage for which we are willing to sacrifice other advantages. Now, it's not simply that this lesson, learning to value being loved, is hard won. There are plenty of pleasures to take along the way. But rather that it engenders a fundamental misrecognition. Because, of course, the transformation from the egoistic to the altruistic is not quite what it seems. Because, to quote, the primitive mind is imperishable. Violent, aggressive, deathly impulses persist. But, says Freud they get turned back on their possessor and exist as ambivalence of feeling. As an aside, we can recognise that this turn back, the turning back of primitive impulses, is akin to that reflexive turn of narcissism that I was just talking about. But to remain with the drift of thoughts on war and death. The mistake or the misrecognition at the heart of a civilised education is that we are misled into regarding men as better than they are. Those who have been responsible for something like the best which has been thought and said have, Freud remarks, evolved from little sadists and animal tormentors. And he continues, if we're to be judged by our unconscious wishes, then we ourselves are, like primeval man, a gang of murderers. So far so familiar, I imagine. This much is simply a broad-brush account of Freud's appraisal of cultural hypocrisy, where, alienated from his instincts, man is, psychologically speaking, living beyond his means. But where do war and death fit in, exactly? The answer is multi-layered, but revolves around the theme of disillusionment. Specifically, there are three factors to consider. First... There's a disorientation of a moral system that comes from a kind of epistemological crisis. It is a commonplace that when war comes, truth is among the first of its casualties. Freud explains that what we accept for ourselves as part of the compromise formation that is social life 
including the acceptance of a prohibition on deliberate lying and deception, we also expect of our state. War, however, reveals that, quote, the state has forbidden to the individual the practice of wrongdoing, not because it desires to abolish it, but because it desires to monopolize it. Conveying the sense of basic injustice that arises when the asymmetry of the social contract is glimpsed, the fury and the envy that meet in disappointment. Freud illuminates one aspect of our narcissistic wound. However, he also adds a crucial gloss to the maxim about truth and war, namely that the disappointment felt with respect to the state's deception is not altogether justified, for, he says, it consists in the destruction of an illusion, in which case it is not truth that is the first casualty of war, but rather an illusion. The second factor that counts for the disillusionment of the non-combatant in wartime concerns the brutality he is forced to imagine or hear report of in his fellow citizens. A necessary reminder of his own brutality, his own readiness to kill at will in his dreams and in his unconscious, is offered by Freud to redress the complaint. The logic being that we have not sunk so low because we never rose so high. The third factor that contributes to a sense of wartime disillusionment concerns death directly. We cannot, in any meaningful sense, think our own death. And in our unconscious, at least, we are convinced by our own immortality. This much is communicated, says Freud, by the husband who declares to his wife, if one of us two dies, I shall move to Paris. (laughs) The conventional treatment of death whereby we do all we can to eliminate it from life, is thoroughly swept away by war. Death, Freud writes, can no longer be denied. We are forced to believe in it. More forcefully, he insists, that with the return of death as a necessity, life has become interesting again. It's recovered its full content. The critic Philip Reef describes the promise of psychoanalysis as the promise of a wholly interesting life. And it isn't only in wartime that this would have to be a life with death in it, an honest and death-facing life. So let's hear again the the psychoanalytic consolations that Freud has to offer in this paper he's writing for his contemporary witnesses of the war. We've not fallen so low because in truth we never rose so high. What we've lost is the comfort of an illusion. Quite beyond the lies that the state may tell us, war catches us out in our own lies and our own desire to believe the lies of others. As a consequence, we feel more than a little humiliated. This may be the narcissistic wound. But when exposed in this way, we have the opportunity to keep our omnipotence and our negative narcissism in check and to reassess just how well our illusions are actually working for us. His counsel? To take seriously the violence of one's own disappointment, to pay credence to death, and, as ever with Freud, to endeavour to allow a little more truthfulness and honesty in amongst the social hypocrisies that we can never fully dispense with. By way of conclusion, then, I'd like to return, albeit elliptically, to some of the questions that I framed my paper with, especially the relation between what has been lost and how to mourn. Although I did say that I wouldn't promise to answer these questions, I do hope that I may now 
point us in a direction at least. Might it be that the narcissistic wound that Freud describes as the condition of the disillusioned citizenry in 1914 offers the chance to start mourning one's own death? In principle, I suspect this is right. However, to do this, to do good anticipatory mourning, would require precisely those conditions that war makes most improbable. I mentioned earlier that Freud wrote, War stamps strangers as enemies. We can return to this now. You'll remember that I I said I wanted to think about the sameness of wars. It seems to me that the paranoid fantasy that accompanies the category shift from stranger to enemy is key here, whether we're talking about the First World War or the conflicts on today's geopolitical stage that produce sights and spectacles just as shocking as any view from the trenches. This paranoid fantasy runs. It isn't that I don't know you, that you're a stranger. It isn't that. It's that in advance of the possibility of knowing you, I know you to be bad. And I put it like this to indicate the ubiquity of such thinking. Splitting, as we know, is a way of not doing ambivalence and not doing mourning. Freud explains the consequences of this stranger-enemy distinction with reference to the imperative to not kill. Thou shalt not kill evolved from the particular context, in Freud's mythic story, of having killed a loved one, specifically from the psychologically intolerable combination of grief plus satisfied hatred. This is to say that on the grounds that the ambivalence is too much to bear, the injunction thou shalt not kill has its root in the killing of a loved one. Swiftly, though, this injunction is extended to strangers and then on to enemies. Yet, whilst thou shalt not kill holds fast in peacetime, in war, this final extension to the enemy subject collapses. And with this collapse comes the collapse of the possibility of remorse. In war, what has been made impermissible with respect to the killing of an enemy is any acknowledgement of the very ambivalence that first instigated the ethical imperative. It can only be our place to speculate as to the ways in which this disconnect from the possibility of remorse is further disconnected once the nature of war has become so distanced that human contact, bodies meeting bodies, is done away with altogether. Thank you.